Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. Roy Robertson was a soldier at Pearl Harbor in 1941. Listen to his words. My ship, the West Virginia, docked at Pearl Harbor on the evening of December 6, 1941. A couple of the fellows and I left the ship that night and attended a Bible study. About 15 sailors sat in a circle on the floor. The leader asked us to each recite our favourite scripture verse. In turn, each sailor shared a verse and briefly commented on it. I sat there in terror. I couldn't recall a single verse. I grew up in a Christian home, went to church three times a week, but I sat there terrified. I couldn't recall a single verse. Finally, I remembered one verse, John 3:16. I silently rehearsed it in my mind. The spotlight of attention grew closer as each sailor took his turn. It was up to the fellow next to me. He recited John 3:16. He took my verse. As he commented on it, I sat there in stunned humiliation. In a few moments, everyone would know that I could not recall from memory even a single verse. Later that night, I went to bed thinking, Robertson, you're a fake. At 7.55 the next morning, I was awakened by the ship alarm, ordering us to battle stations. 360 planes of the Japanese Imperial fleets were attacking our ship and the other military installations. My crew and I raced to our machine gun emplacements, but all we had was practice ammunition. So for the first 15 minutes of the two-hour battle, we only fired blanks, hoping to scare the Japanese aeroplanes. As I stood there firing fake ammunition, I thought, Robertson, this is how your whole life has been, firing blanks for Christ. I made up my mind as Japanese bullets slammed into our ship, If, if I escape with my life, I will get serious about following Jesus. Roy Robertson did get serious. He became the first missionary of the Navigators and did a lot of work with Billy Graham as well. Let me ask you a question today. Are you growing more mature in the Lord or are you firing blanks? In a world full of distractions and information overload, trying to take in, and respond to too much information can cause forgetfulness, fatigue, and difficulty with focus. Hello, and welcome to our GCS podcast with Tony Anthony. If you were a soldier on the battlefield, would you walk outside your secured building alone, without any armor or backup? Would you skip your training and fitness sessions and ignore your leader's commands and warnings? Of course not. But that's exactly what many Christians do when it comes to their spiritual lives. They try to handle things without the help of God, and eventually, they lose the desire to spend time in God's Word and grow deaf to the Holy Spirit's guidance. Becoming complacent, they forget they are even at war and wake up one day to find that the enemy has infiltrated their hearts and minds. This is exactly what the enemy wants us to do but we need not fall victim to his deceptive tactics. Let's join Tony as he looks at biblical strategies to strengthen your faith, protect you from the enemy's attacks, and remind you of the victory we have in Christ. War and Romance 
When I first met Sarah, it's probably fair to say I fell head over heels in love with her. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but after only a couple of hours in her company, I could think of no one else. I was totally enthralled by her and wanted to make the very best of myself to ensure she noticed me. I had very little to offer. I was not long out of prison in Cyprus and had been reduced to something of a social wreck. My days as a self-assured gutsy young man were long gone. My prison encounter with Jesus had put to death my overwhelmingly arrogant nature and was teaching me a new humility by breaking me down to nothing. I recognised that and accepted it gratefully, but I didn't enjoy the fear of normal things, my stammering speech, my, my panic at meeting nice people. I, I had nothing. I was nothing. And here was this wonderful girl who I dared to dream might come to care for me. At the time, Sarah was training to be a teacher and living in a shared house in South London. I've never been so nervous as I was that evening. I decided to visit her. I had no money and walked a considerable distance to her house. She deserved flowers. At a little way down the street, there was a house, a well-kept garden embellished with a glorious rosebush stretching out onto the pavement. I looked around. No one was in sight. In an instant, I picked the most beautiful long-stemmed rose that I could find, and guilt came over me. I shouldn't have stolen the rose, but when I thought of Sarah, I knew it was worth a risk worth taking. This behaviour continued as our courtship blossomed. I'm ashamed to say I stole every rose on that, on that bush. Um, I left it bare. Perhaps it's the fact that I'm half Italian, but I've always believed in big romantic gestures. All through the early years of our marriage, I have bought Sarah the biggest bouquet of flowers I could find. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing on a big scale has been my motto all my life. In recent years, however, times have changed. Since I became a full-time missionary, a full-time evangelist, you know, through our international evangelistic ministry, our family have lived by faith. I do not take a salary. I don't charge for what I do. So, so much of our activity runs on a financial loss, to be honest with you. But the Lord provides for all of our needs, and we're very blessed. Naturally, every penny we have has to be very wisely considered. A little while ago, I found myself walking past a flower store, and there was a beautiful bouquet of flowers marked £20. That's what caught my eye. I found myself fingering the £20 notes in my pocket and thinking how much I'd love to buy the flowers for my wife. Don't be ridiculous, I told myself. This money has to last all week. I knew I had some travel to pay for. In fact, I needed the bus fare to get home, actually. I walked on, but somehow it was as though God was prompting me. Go back, get the flowers for Sarah. Well, I turned in surprising giddiness and went back to the store. And even then, the flower lady had to virtually pull the note out of my hand as I offered it to her. It was a long walk home, but I was excited at the thought of seeing Sarah's face, really, when I walked in with the flowers. I imagined her beaming smile and knew I'd done the right thing, perhaps. But, you know, this time was different. She didn't say anything to me, but instead began to cry. Tears began streaming down her face, and I, I held her as she sobbed. I'm sorry, she said. It's just that it's been so long since you bought me flowers. I was so ashamed. I realised that in nobody dedicating myself to ministry, I'd done the very thing that God would hate. I neglected my first love. There's an important lesson here, you know. I'm reminded of the church in Ephesus, committed believers doing many things right. But as we read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, there is a fundamental problem at heart. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's shameful how we can so often take those who mean the most to us for granted. You know, relationships grow stale and predictable and too comfortable until we drift into coexisting rather than truly living with one another. If we treat those we love in that way, how easy then is it to do the same with God? To let our communication and our loving him grow tired and weary. All too soon we stop buying roses for God. We grow tired and bored of going to church. We find prayer and Bible reading or shown the gospel, you know, nothing more than a chore. You know, Matthew chapter 5 verses 15 and 16, Jesus talks about the lampstand shining out to everyone. You know, it says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives lights to everyone in the house. Well, in the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. This is a wonderful analogy for the church. And yet we've seen, you know, Revelation heeds a chilling warning that God can and will take away our lamp if we neglect our first love and fail to remember the joy of our first courtship our salvation. You know, we've already taken a look at that we have a very big problem in life concerning not just our ability, but primarily our motivation and desire to partake in the Great Commission. It is a problem of sin, a problem of disobedience, actually, and overwhelmingly a problem of blindness. It's a problem that cuts the very heart of the contemporary church. I believe that the church has become blinded to its priority in this world, and we need to understand that we are in a war. The first fiery arrows were shot the moment sin entered the world, and the battle has been raging ever since. You know, we read in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, depending on the translation you look at, God is described as being a man of war, or a warrior, or a fighter. It's interesting, Calvary is also described in the language of the battle scene. You know, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Calvary's, you know, described as that battle scene, having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Calvary was a battle scene. You know, second book of Timothy, chapter two, verse three, speaks of Christians as being soldiers. And of course, there's the powerful image of the Christian graces illustrated as pieces of armour in Ephesians chapter six, verses 14 to 17. You got there the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, feet fitted with readiness for the gospel of peace. You got the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. The Bible isn't shy when it comes to stating who the enemy is either. You know, resist the devil, we're instructed in James 4 verse 7. Actually, before that, it says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee. This kind of language and imagery might be hard to reconcile with our daily lives. Maybe it's more the stuff of Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, you know, the stuff of wild, outlandish, cinematic fantasy that'll do to do with our housework or the office or the school run or the social club. You know, the old lady for whom you held the door open or the homeless man you passed by on the way to the supermarket. Yet what we know of these great authors, there is a biblical incitement behind their portrayals of the battle of good and evil. 
Okay, so it's not every day we're coming face to face with some Tolkien-esque demon. But as we see in just a handful of scriptures, you know, we, God's people, are inevitably and inextricably right in the centre of one almighty cosmic war. The battle might be in the heavenly realms, but as soldiers adorned in the arm of God, our earthly battles are no less bloody. But what are we warring over? How about injustice, poverty, starvation, physical abuse, sickness, disease, prostitution, pornography, every kind of abuse from tobacco and alcohol to sex, drugs, materialism, to name but a few. From the very obvious, the subtle and hidden conditions of the mind, whether you're talking about depression, desperation, loneliness, and who are we fighting for anyway? Well, that hasn't changed. Since at the time Jesus walked the earth, we're fighting for the outcasts, you know, the homeless, the disabled, the disadvantaged, the hurting, the starving, the abused, all who suffer affliction. Many compassionate men and women are instinctively compelled to go some way to relieve the suffering of fellow human beings. As Christians, we're called to walk as Jesus walked, to care for the widows and orphans, seek justice for the imprisoned, feed and clothe the impoverished, heal the hurting. Isn't that what James 1.27 tells us? And isn't that what Psalm 146.7 shouts out? All these battles and many more, you know, they're critical and vital aspects of our Christian witness in this world. And we've got to fight these wars vigorously and relentlessly. But ultimately, what is our focus? What is the purpose of the battle? What are we truly warring for? Well, our true fight is for souls, the souls of men and women for the glory of God. I mean, think again about the point of church. Why do we have church services? Well, the answer is clear. You know, Ephesians 5.19 exhorts us to speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Throughout the New Testament, we see believers meeting together, you know, breaking bread, making music, giving thanks to God. The church on earth is primarily a sign to all around that God is great and Jesus is alive. And if our motivation is pure, there's no greater reason to attend church week after week than this. The church is a witness to Christ. It's our testimony to him. So again, we've got to consider the big picture of God's divine plan. The reason why we have church services and Bible studies and conferences galore, summer camps every year, you know, Christian books, numerous other resources, surely because God's trying to reach the whole world to have a relationship with him. So, you know, we're hearing here about so many things, you know, where we're studying, we're talking, we're praying about it. When are we actually going to get out there and do it, though? That's my question. You know, the average university course is three years. And then a graduate will typically go out into the world and hopefully use and apply their training, don't you think? Well, indeed, this was the way with the early disciples as well. They had three years in the presence of the master learning from him before being sent out into the world. Is there not a parallel here with our learning in church, our house groups, or our personal study? You know, do we expect to sit in school for 50 years, 80 years, 100 years without ever actually using what we've learned? It's great to spend time with other believers singing and talking about the joy of salvation and the wonder of our relationship with God. But I believe that when we're getting out, you know, out there sharing Jesus's message with others, that's when we're demonstrating genuine gratitude to him. Jesus said that his mission was to seek and save the lost. That's what we read in Luke 19 verse 10, isn't it? The Apostle Paul emphasises Jesus' mission when you look at 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ came into the world to save sinners, 
Time and again, the Bible makes it clear that the very purpose of our time here on earth is to choose to turn away from the wrong things in our life and to invite Jesus to be our saviour. Don't we read there in Mark 8.36, for what, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit a soul? You know, in the reports leading up to this much quoted verse, we again see Jesus clearly at war with Satan. You know, Mark 8.33, you know, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And it was William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, you know, was clearly signed up for battle in his declaration to King Edwards, you know. He wrote this in one of his autograph albums. Some men's ambition is art. Some men's ambition is fame. Some men's ambition is gold. But my ambition is the souls of men. You know, what Booth and many others like him recognised was that the priority of God's people had to be the same as that of Jesus himself. To seek and save souls. And one of my favourites quotes from the 19th century preacher Charles Finney. He said this, If the leading feature of your character is not the absorbing thoughts and efforts to reconcile men to God, you've not the root of the matter in you. Whatever appearance of religion you may have, you lack the leading and fundamental characteristic of true piety, the character and aims of Jesus and his disciples. Look at them and see how this feature stands out in strong and eternal relief as the leading characteristic, the prominent design and the objective of their lives. Isn't that powerful? So if our battle is to win souls, not the where the winner of the souls, but Jesus wins the souls, where the sowers. But in that whole work of seeing souls won, to join with Jesus' followers down the ages in the Great Commission, why are we failing so badly in this day and age? You know, it's easy to confine ourselves in the security of church, <laughs> our cosy meetings. But Jesus also said, go, as we read in Matthew 28 verse 19 and Mark 16 verse 15. He told us to get out there and proclaim the gospel to everyone on earth. When he said that, he wasn't just talking to the likes of amazing evangelists like Billy Graham or other Ephesians 4 evangelists that you might um, think of. He was talking to everyone and anyone who's received this gift of salvation for themselves. Come on. He was talking to everyone in every church, in every town, village and suburb. He was talking to me. He was talking to you. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, men are mirrors or carriers of Christ to other men. Usually it's those who know him that bring him to others. That is why the church, the whole body of Christians, showing him to one another is so important. Powerful words of C.S. Lewis. You know, when I stole that first rose for Sarah, I wasn't thinking of the consequences. No, it wasn't right, but I was taking a risk in the name of love. But in the same way, if church becomes nothing more than a bit of liturgy, a prayer, a song and a cup of coffee with familiar friends, it soon grows stale and boring. And we, we begin to neglect the very thing, the very one that brought us there. Yet it's not too late, you know. <laughs> you know, when we get out into the world and share the gospel, yeah, facing possible ridicule and rejection, we put ourselves on the line again. And in doing so, we, we taste afresh the, the exuberance of taking risks for the one who rightly we adore and love. You know, Sarah's reaction to that bunch of flowers was a wake-up call for me. It showed me how dangerously clouded I can become when it comes to life and love. How easily, I, you know, I let other things get in the way. Things that vie for my attention and swallow up the precious moments that make a, a love affair. I will always make sure from now on that Sarah gets flowers. I can tell you that. It's so easy to become distracted by things that appear to be important. 
This is exactly what I perceive is happening in our churches. We've lost sight of our priority. You know, the gladness, the romance, the excitement of our walk with Jesus has faded somewhat. And we become less attentive, I think, less passionate and, and more busy with other things. You know, Jesus used the parable of the wedding guests, didn't he? As we read in Matthew 22, to emphasise God's desire to see his people, his precious and chosen guests of heaven, you know, give their very best in gratitude for his gift. Don't you think? First, there were those who completely ignored the king's invitation to the special wedding feast for his son. So the king cast the net wider and generously invited many others in from the streets. But what did he find when he came to meet the guests? He noticed there was a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. How could this man be so disrespectful? How could he expect to partake of the great feast and share the generosity of the king when he wasn't prepared to make any effort himself? Jesus says that the king told the attendants to throw him out. Doesn't it say into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth? (laughs) Quite shocking, isn't it? And yet that's what the Lord says. We can talk about wedding clothes or we can talk about battle dress, <laughs> you know, whatever analogy appeals, whatever works for you. The question's the same. Where is our first love? Where is our attention? Do we recognize the war or are we too distracted by other things? Are we on the front line or has the watchman fallen asleep here in the tower? You know, when will we wake up and realize the fortress of the church has opened wide? And whilst we slumber in ignorance, we lay exposed and vulnerable to the slings and arrows of the enemy. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.